0: Welcome to Cybermania, Cyber Talks with the brightest minds in cybersecurity. Discussing risks, AI, emerging threats, workforce challenges, and more. Brought to you by Cyber Range Solutions. With your host, May Brooks. Hello and welcome to Cybermania. Yes, see what I did there. So, first episode, and my first guest here. Is Ryan Clotier. He's a CASSP, a passionate thought leader, a cybersecurity visionary, AI enthusiast, and good friend, which is, I think, the most important title. So, how are you, Ryan?
1: May, I'm doing great. Such an honor to be here today. I'm so excited to see you getting back in the podcast game. I know yes, that. Uh, it's been a while. Know, it has. and uh, just really humbled and honored to be here with you and excited to just to chat, catch up and and share some of that passion we both have for for the people side and the and the tech side of this this crazy industry we call cybersecurity.
0: Yes, and it is getting crazy and crazier by the I would't say by the minute, but by the hour, definitely.
1: Yes. they tell me so, by the Schrodinger nanosecond now.
0: I hope not. I mean, I can't stay, like, up to date in nanoseconds. That's, like, even for me, that's expecting too much,
1: I think. I just keep so checking to see if the cat's still alive.
0: That's true. The question is, is it in the box? Yes. So, whenever I start always- this podcast... <laughs> that's true. If they find a box, they'll get into it. Okay. So, I always like to start these podcasts with, like, sort of the elevated pitch of... Who are you? So who are you? What do you do? You tell us. Yeah. Uh,
1: Okay. Uh, As May mentioned, Ryan Clotier, name remains the same. Uh, I am a very passionate cyber squirrel. Uh, Been doing this a long time. Got into technology when I was a small child. Uh, Built my first PC at eight. Wrote my first software program by nine. Compromised my first system by nine and a half. Uh, and by first software program, I mean, hello world. Uh, but really have always had a, a, a desire and a, an insatiable curiosity. And, and as I progressed through my career, um, I've done a lot of different things, uh, data systems, infrastructure, software dev, you name it. Uh, but security was always kind of the, the omnipresent thing. And and really what I realized was I, I like protecting people. Uh, and so I was able to take those skills uh, and my love for conversations and, and make a career out of it. So I'm, I'm that kind of quirky, weird uh, cyber squirrel. But uh, at the end of the day, I, I do have a heart for service and, and a passion for for taking care and protecting people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you've been in cybersecurity for so long, I will say uh, 20 years, because give it at 20 it. years. See, see, let's go with that. And I want you to... Tell me a little bit, where do you see the line goes between we have a problem between security and comfort and efficiency. I mean, it's not easy. Whenever I have those conversations with business, with the business side, with UI UX people, they always tell me, yeah, but it's not going to be convenient. People are not going to like it. We add additional layers of security, like all the time. Where do you see this line goes?
1: This balance, You know, well, I, what we know is that security controls that create friction are security controls that people work around. So I think where we have to go is to a uh, security model and security solutions that are built for people, not for technology. And I think that's where we've maybe missed the mark for the last 20 years is we've we've really focused on the the uh, uh, technology side of the protection instead of the people side of the protection. You know, as I think about working with elders, as I think about working with the youth, uh, or let's be honest, frustrated board members, uh, it's always the same thing. Okay, yeah, I'm willing to do it, but you know, you you tell me not to click the link, but the only way I can use the computer is to click the link. You tell me I got to watch out for all these scams and frauds, but they don't look like scams or frauds. So I think where we have to evolve to is actually a shift in our engineering and a shift in our approach to be more compatible with the physical human self, the the analog, if you will, the analog human self, because the digital world is an abstract world. It is an ethereal world that has been removed from our day-to-day physical life, but yet has a kinetic, real physical impact to our day-to-day physical life. So because we've now hit that point where, you know, mouse clicks can kill AI can persuade entire countries to vote a certain way or not uh, misinformation, disinformation, malinformation, just all this stuff. Well, for the average person, that's just overwhelming geek speak. And what they really want to know is, can you make it work like my door lock? Can you make it work like the alarm on my car? I push a button, it goes chirp, chirp. I know the alarm set, I feel safer, I move on. So I, I think that's where we have to go as an industry. Um, yeah. How we compare, I think, is is part of what I'm excited to be working on right now is defining that how, what does that look like? What are those solutions? Who are the companies that are, are thinking this way?
0: I think that I absolutely agree. I think that to resonate what you've just said, I think that today, as cybersecurity professionals, we need to understand psychology. And so I know that for a lot of people, when I say that, they look at me, why? Because at the end of the day, what social engineers are doing is understanding human nature and utilizing that. And if we do the same from our perspective, and if we understand why fear of missing out is so strong and greed and curiosity and urgency, we understand the way that Hackers work and we can try to defend against it and we can try to bake that in. And just like today, you're not going to pay extra money to get a car that is safe. You assume that the car that when I press the brake, the car will stop. I mean, that's something yeah. that I assume when I get in the car. I think that I absolutely agree. We have to bake it in. Um, you talked about the human factor and you talked about the fact that you're very passionate about exploring new things and i think that that's something that we both have in common being sort of lifelong learners and i think that mm-hmm. with cyber security and we just started with the fact that it's ever evolving and ever changing and we have to stay up to date when we have to stay up to the current event and the new technology and everything i think that this state of mind i want to i want to hear your perspective is this state of mind something that you can adopt? Or is it something that you're just born into? Or should you just try and grow it? I mean, I know that a lot of people going to cybersecurity don't understand. It's not a matter of you're going to do your BA or your BSC and maybe then you'll do a master's and then you'll do the CSSP and then you're done. You're, no, you're never going to be done. It's right. never going to be well, done. I
1: so what you're touching on is something that, you know, we we kind of refer to as the security mindset. And I've done a lot of work around this with various universities, uh, partnering with with actually doctors of uh, philosophy and ethics, uh, because I really do believe that the the mindset of a security practitioner is one that is always on the lookout for what could happen, not what will happen. Uh, and it's a fine line, right? Uh, as as one who scares the bejesus out of people for <laughs> a profession. Um, It's walking that fine line of of not, you know, because I don't don't do FUD. Trust me, the fear I bring, there should be no uncertainty nor doubt about. Be afraid. But fear puts you in a diminished capacity to evaluate risk. And so I think we've actually, we're working against ourselves in that regard. The average person cannot handle that type of thinking, nor do they want to. Most people that I interact with say, I prefer to stay ignorant to these things. (laughs) And- what they're really saying to you is I am psychologically afraid, but I'm lacking that physical uh, survival fear component because that disconnect isn't, is, is present, right? My, my, my higher order thinking in the front isn't connecting Mm -hmm. to my primitive back. And so, you know, when you say, well, this could happen, this could happen. What a lot of times you experience is, is shutting down as a security practitioner, The art of the possible must be something you do. Now, what's another interesting fact about this is that that starts to get into this abstract thinking or this higher order of thinking, thinking about your thinking. Uh, We describe that as metacognition. And that's actually a a, you're born with it. It's not something uh, there's several arguments. My position is it's not something that if you don't have an inkling for it, that can be trained into. You either are kind of wired that way or you're not. Um, Some people may not have the tools to leverage it, but they have the capability within them. And some people don't have the capability. I think what's what's important, though, is that, and I love that you touched on the psychology piece. As security practitioners, we have to understand that, first and foremost, this is about people. If people didn't get hurt, there wouldn't be an industry here. If there wasn't harm that came to people, if all it ever was, was a computer not working, we wouldn't have an industry that would, you know, it just would be, it'd be handled a different way. So because of that people component, uh, that's why we exist. The problem is, is the minute you get into this industry, you'll find out the number one challenge is the people. Now, traditionally, we want to blame the people. We want to say it's the people's fault. It's oh, it's the users, right? And by the way, the only other industry that refers to their customer base as users are drug dealers. We should probably keep that in mind. Maybe they're consumers, and that's the way we need to start thinking about them. And we need to stop thinking of ourselves as these elitist uh, uh, know-it-alls and start thinking of ourselves as customer service agents, as product creators, As service providers, and I mean service, not in the sense of, hey, I provide you a thingy and you pay me a monthly bill and that's the extent of our relationship, but actually being of service to the business. I want the business to come to me with their great new idea because I want to get involved right away. And the only way I found that that happens is if they are comfortable with me, that they understand I'm not going to just shut it down, that I'm, I'm there to work with them, not against them. And the last thing I'll say on this is that a lot of us don't remember, especially those of us with less gray hair, uh, that the old school IT, the first time these business folks inter- interacted with an IT person was, was the, the trope of the 1980s sysadmin, who, frankly, is a jerk and flies yeah. in and jams on the keyboard, looks at you like you're dumb, doesn't explain anything, goes, it's fixed now and walks away. And we, we have that stigma, so we have to get through that. And, and really, if, if we take a, an empathetic and compassionate approach, and we realize that we don't work for IT, we don't work for security, we are a supporting function of the business, uh, those are the organizations where I see the security teams get the biggest budgets. Those are the organizations where I see security culture adopted the fastest. And those are the organizations that are less likely to, so, to show up on Shodan. I totally agree. I
0: think totally- that... In the the past, as an industry, we sort of relied on fear, uncertainty, doubt, the fact that whatever we were saying was sort of like swooshing up there and no one really understood what we were saying. But I think that it could only get us so far. Today, we have to be... Compatible with the business following up on the previous uh, when I talked about the line. So we have to make sure that whatever it is that we tell the business we need that to secure the business is not going to negatively affect the business goals, the business outcomes. Because at the end of the day, if we can't be the no people, we used to be the no people. We want to do something. No. So I always try to be the yes, but.
1: Yes, so I like to think yes. Of it as but we need to add how. something. Yeah. yeah, and I refer to that as Department of How. So yeah. instead of Department of No, because you're right, we did. We just no, no, because it was <laughs> always easier to say no than to try to explain the why behind that no. And and so I think now it's and, and I love your yes, but right, it, same thing. It's how great, mm-hmm. love this. Episode. How do we do this in a way that meets the following objectives? Whether they're compliance objectives, as we all know, compliance and security are not the same thing. You can have one without the other. Having one doesn't give you the other. <laughs> uh, but, you know, is it, is it a compliance driven? And, and I would argue today that the number one thing we need to focus on is safety. Is this a safety related issue? Is my hospital still going to be able to provide emergency services because the telco that counts on the hospital is running some antiquated piece of equipment that's subject to these vulnerabilities, right? That's concerning. We need to start thinking differently. And that's back to my comment about changing our engineering approach.
0: Absolutely, so, you know, everyone's talking about AI, so we have to talk about AI as well. So, are the robots gonna take over? I mean, I know that you've been researching AI for a while now. It's not something new, starting with ChatGPT, though. I love ChatGPT. Right. Um, yeah, I, I really love ChatGPT. Uh, we had that conversation earlier today. Um, but I want to hear from you. What, in your eyes, is the biggest challenge for us as an industry in the AI age?
1: So Everything twofold. Uh, it, it does. And actually, uh, I'm glad you bring this up. I, I recently had the privilege of being the lead developer uh, for ISACA's white paper on AI risk. You can find it on ISACA's website. It's called The Promise and Peril of the AI Revolution. And the idea behind this is that it's actually a twofold factor. The first is that we are experiencing a rate of change that is incompatible with our biology. We literally cannot keep up as the people that keep up for a living. We cannot keep up because the rate of change is exponential and the intersection, the collision of multiple technologies that have been in laboratories for 15 and 20 years now hitting commercial viability. We think about robotics. We think about 3D printing of of body parts. We think about new medicines being discovered in, in hours what used to take decades, and this is before we get into quantum, we'll save that for another day, but the the, the the rate of change, okay, and the second, which is unique to generative language, right, is unique to large language models, or as I'm uh, calling them, golems. I steal this from the Center for Human Technology, so shout out to you guys, uh, but golems. And and for those of you uh, uh, familiar with uh, uh, Judaic history, Gollum is is actually a very fitting way to describe this thing. Mm-hmm. But what is what is interesting is we're all contributing to the same thing now. So in Generation One of AI, the AI we all know and think sucks because anybody ever tried to talk to Siri? Siri, give me directions to, and she's like, I just ordered four shirts. What? So. <laughs> you know, we've, we've had these poor experiences with the primitive AI with this very, what we call narrow band, narrow band AI, right? We had one for image analysis. We had one for audio analysis. We had one for, uh, shopping recommendations. We had one for social media manipulation. I mean, uh, post promotions, uh, right. So we had these, but they were narrow, they were dumb. They really were they weren't intelligent. They were really fancy machine learning statistical algorithms, and if you worked in the vision stuff, you kind of understood how the audio stuff worked, but not really. Because they were different language constructs. They were different uh, uh, logic constructs. Now, fast forward to generative, to these Golems, these generative large language models. And what you find is that in the Golems, what we have is a uh, uh, everyone contributing to the same language yeah. model. So yeah. when somebody solves a problem for vision based solutions, it automatically becomes available to audio, to DNA mapping, to functional magnetic resonance imaging mapping, uh, and and most of the contributors today don't understand that we're working on a shared thing. So what happens is the AI gains a new capability that no one understood or thought it had because nobody gave it that capability. But what we did do is we gave it a little bit of this over here, a little bit of this over here and a little bit of that over there. And the model said, well, now that I have these things, I can combine them and make this new thing. And so because of the lack of visibility to what it's doing, because of the speed of change and the, 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 uh collective contributing to the same models. Uh I don't think I'm worried that the AI is going to become sentient and, and take us all out. However, that well, yeah. is well, yeah. at some point. But I'm I'm more concerned that we have inadvertently or are about to inadvertently create capabilities we would have never given it had we understood that that's what we were teaching it. So I think I think it's 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 very complex. Um, but that, that's why safety, and you'll, if, you, if you look into any of the things that I have to say on this topic, I'm a huge advocate for AI safety, and I don't mean that, again, in the sense of preventing it from becoming sentient, although that is something at some point we do have to think about, but it's more around development practices. Don't tell me you can't tell what it's doing, it's a computer. What you meant to say was you never took time to build the mechanisms in to make sure you knew what it was doing. And it's because of the speed of change. We're going from an experimental lab project to commercially viable in days. So I think that for me is the big concern around AI is we don't know it well enough. Those that are contributing to it are generally researchers and those that are very smart and nerdy in nature. But the consumers of it and those that are driving the the next choice of innovations are business minded folk who don't necessarily understand the impact of some of those asks. Well, I just want to know better stock prices. Hmm. Hmm. Adversary, right? One who gets paid, you know, good, good, bad guys. My wife likes to say uh, gets paid to be an adversary. I have to think about, well, what would I do to weaponize that? How would I use that new capability to pick a better stock to do the opposite? How would I use it to disrupt the stock market? How would I use it to introduce defect into product? And there's not enough people focused on that side of the equation.
0: Yeah, I think it's all about the people, just like you said. Um, Yeah, we, we touched upon that when we talked about lifelong learning. And I think that with AI, I think that's actually a huge thing. I remember that it wasn't so long ago when OpenAI first introduced ChatGPT. It's less than a year. It's about, what is it, eight, nine months ago? And it literally changed the world. I remember showing it for the first time to people at work. They were looking at me, what is that? So I think, yes, it is It's all about the people. Um, and I want to reference something else. I know that we have a huge, huge industry gap. According to ISC2, they've mentioned in their 2022 se- study that I-, <laughs> I had the privilege of being involved with, um, we identified a gap of over 3.5 million people in cyber security now on the one hand side i look at ai and i'm saying yeah it's going to reduce the need for benign everyday tasks i think that whatever we were saying about sim becoming slower and seeing those automations i think that we'll see that more and more and i think that the technology is maturing to the level that we won't really need l1 socks but, sock analysts. but i think that that presents another question well with the ne- where will the next generation of experts come from i mean they have to start at the beginning and it's the same i think for me as a cybersecurity per- person i'm looking at the cybersecurity industry but i'm also looking at developers i don't need people with basic software skills i can just ask chatgpt create that script for me i don't need that anymore but the question is, where will the next generation of experts come from? And I know that you're doing a lot of things here to educate the next generation with CISSP, et cetera. So I want to hear from you.
1: Yeah, and, and and thanks for bringing that up. Uh, just a, a quick shameless plug. Uh, anyone yeah. looking to learn more about what is CISSP? What is, what is it like to be a cybersecurity professional? How do you get into it? Maybe the training's costly or inaccessible. Uh, go to YouTube, look up, uh, FR Secure's free CISSP mentor program, myself and a collection of friends, uh, run that program uh, every year to, for, for the purpose of, of uh, allowing underserved communities to have access to this, allowing those that are in countries where, you know, they have the smarts, they have the capability, but the price tag to access it is, is just too far beyond their reach. Um, I think what's interesting is as one who many look to as an expert, and I keep a chart on my wall in my office, and it's a, it's a graph. And there's a curve, and it says what I know, what I think I know, and what I don't know. And where the intersection of expert is, is when what I don't know is in excess of what I do and what I think I do. And what's dangerous, in, and all of us go through this in our career, what's dangerous is that middle part where I'm now confident that I have answers and that I know what's going on. And and that overconfidence a lot of times is, is what gets us in trouble. So I don't think we'll ever actually have experts again. And and, and, I, and I know this is, might seem like That's an unusual... scary. Point. Yeah,
0: it's, it's a scary and thought. What, I...
1: I don't have time. I recently stepped down as president of, of Security Studio because I could not be president and... Even remotely attempt to keep up with what is going on, what is happening, what is changing, what is evolving, and and you brought a, a interesting point up, which is, uh, if you get rid of level one, how do I how do I grow uh, uh, somebody? You know, it, it's fascinating to me how many doctorates of cyber I've encountered recently. Uh, And no disrespect to those of you that worked really hard to get one, uh, but your academic institution most likely didn't teach you anything practical nor employable that I can use uh, because they didn't give you hands-on. They didn't say, you know, academia says that we should have zero trust. Oh, I agree. But let's talk about How am I going to implement Uh, it? (laughs) Inventory you don't know what you have you can't get to zero trust and zero trust is a bit of a misnomer anyways in order for a computer to properly communicate there has to be some degree of trust so really what they're saying is continuous adaptive trust which is a whole different podcast for another day point is i think that again uh i I coined a phrase feel free to take it put it on a shirt somebody the speed of change is tearing apart the fabric of society and the weight of change is crumbling the foundation of humanity. And I say that because yeah. we are not addressing this revolutionary technology. This is not a toaster. This is something that has the ability to exceed our intelligence at some point And has already exceeded it in certain narrow areas. Has the ability to persuade us, manipulate us. And again, I'm not worried about it doing it by itself. I'm worried about what happens when AI is a tool, it is a toy, it is a nation-state weapon, and we are in an arms race. And everyone is screaming, pump the brakes, but no one can, because just like the Cold War... Russia's thinking we're doing things that we're not. We're thinking they're doing things they're not. And so we're compensating for the gap. And if anybody's yeah. a history buff, go yeah. back and do your homework on the Cold War and see how close we came so many times to disaster, not because of facts, not because of what the other country was actually doing, but because of what we were collectively doing in the assumption that something else was already happening. And I see this pattern repeating with A.I. So I think that the best thing that anybody could do, if you're a junior today, let's say you woke up, you just graduated, you think this is the career for you. I'm going to encourage you to take psychology 101. And I would like you to take a I want you to be able to explain to me how a computer functions, how a processor processes, how code is compiled, because many developers today don't understand how the code executes. Many system engineers don't understand how firmware gets created. And so there's this gap uh, of knowledge. And I think expertise will, will be something that a collective body brings forward. I don't know how many individuals uh, and, and myself, I've given up trying to be the expert of any yeah. one thing. Because by the time I remotely get to it, it's either deprecated, it's, it's no longer a valid technology or something else has changed significantly enough that what was once, you know, kind of the expert Padding answer, the edge. yeah, it's back to it depends, and that's the other thing. Get very comfortable with this idea that it depends. It's that's how you know a real cyber expert from a not real one. Ask them a question. If they give you an answer, they're probably not a real expert. If they go, well, <laughs> kind it depends. of all depends. So yes, yeah, it's true. a long one, but that's that's kind of my passion on that.
0: As uh, I, I'm scared of the future a little bit because I think that you do need to do the basic. You can't go to battle without doing basic training. And I think that for a lot of people today, we see so many tasks being automated that they won't have those basic skills. And I think the basic skills are important. I mean. <laughs> Time has when you've seen something once, it's not the same. Like you've seen the same thing fifteen times. And right. I come from the music world. I used to play the piano for many years. I actually went back to playing the piano a few about a year ago, and I started with scales. And there are some things that you remember. It's like it's muscle memory. Wake me up two a.m. Tell me to do the skills. I'll do it at 2 a.m. I don't have to think about it. It's muscle memory. And I think that trying to get to being a concert pianist without doing skills is impossible. And becoming an expert without doing basics is also impossible. But only time will tell, I guess.
1: Well, and I'll add this. I'll add this. So let's say you were never exposed to music before. Okay? Uh, Music theory. So you didn't know scales. You didn't know harmonics. You, didn't, you were lacking in the basis of music theory. So while your ear could hear a song that you liked, hey, I like that, you would be unable to describe why. You mm-hmm. would, why are the most popular songs all in a very specific key range? Why is that? Why do the pop hits all happen to have a roughly the same BPM and tempo? Yes. Why is that? There's actually science behind it, and we won't get into that today, different podcast, but it's, it's important to bring up because my fear, if you will, uh, is that the trust we're placing in the AI to produce results
0: mm-hmm.
1: are trustworthy the amount of people that possess the knowledge necessary to tell accurate from inaccurate. So, for example, if you've never taken music theory, you don't know anything about it, and I give you a sheet of music that's off-key, and it looks like a symphony, at first glance, this is great! This is fantastic! Oh, man, this could be a beautiful song! But the first time you try to play it, it sounds like 40 cats in a blender with a tuba. Well, nobody wants that. So... I think we are at risk of putting too much trust. And and we've already seen this uh, you, you know for the listeners. Uh, every one of us has encountered the Google expert. Yes. They did 2 seconds Ch- of just
0: yeah and ChatGPT is just yeah. as bad maybe even worse because it is, it's out of date.
1: And, and 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 my point is is that that if 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 somebody for example myself uh one who's humbled and and honored to have a position where my voice is listened to right people look to me and say expert so if i was to say this is the way it is that carries if two more experts jump on that bandwagon and go yeah rabble rabble what he said that that's it fact. it's
0: fact exactly
1: That's scary. So back to that safety checks and balances. So to your point, what I think a new area where an expertise could be developed, a new area where I think, yeah, the SOC one job went away, but what replaces it is around prompt engineering, prompt safety, data model, data integrity, data provenance. I think these things become the critical components of cybersecurity going forward in this world of AI. I don't think we're going to be playing whack-a-mole on the network much longer. I do think that we are going to refine things enough to to gain a, a meaningful and trustworthy advantage there. I fear that nobody knows how to look at the data set enough to tell whether it's accurate.
0: True. I think data integrity is probably one of the biggest keys when we look at, well, data on the data age in general, not just um, bring this to a close. I always like to ask a few questions, like very fast, very quick, sort of personal quiz. So let's start with that. What's the best piece of advice you've received throughout your, your, your career?
1: Two ears, one mouth. Ask why more often.
0: Nice. Nice, do you remember who said that?
1: Yes, and I can't say.
0: Oh no. Well, I'll I'll grow you for it
1: later. We'll say good friend.
0: Good friend, exactly, who wants to remain anonymous, yeah. Okay, can you name, this time I do want you to name, someone who opened a door for you in your career when you least expected it?
1: Yeah, Evan Francine.
0: How did he do that?
1: Uh, he gave me an opportunity to conduct business in a way that no one believed to be possible. He gave me an opportunity to explore what being an executive meant. He, he truly empowered me to, to embrace my vision and, and to have the resources and opportunities to really get my, my fingernails dirty and to bump my knees and stub my toes and, and gain that, that invaluable experience you only learn through through doing it, and and I I owe him a world of credit, and and frankly, the industry as a whole, uh, if you don't know the man, you need to look into him. The industry as a whole owes that man a debt of gratitude. Absolutely, absolutely,
0: Absolutely. so thank you, Evan, absolutely. Okay, next question. If you had to describe your journey in cybersecurity in one word, what would that word be? Shit show. (laughs) That's two words. But I'll, go, no, okay, it's, I'll, it's, I'll I'll
1: I'll grind. There's a okay, hyphen. Fine.
0: Okay, uh, fun. okay, fine.
1: Fun. It's been fun. It's been fun. Uh, if I if yeah. I had to pick one for a positive, I'll give you one negative. <laughs> trying.
0: Ooh, so now we have three. We have shit show fun and <laughs> trying. Okay, okay. We'll we'll see Well, see, if you take okay.
1: fun and trying, you put it together, you get shit show.
0: Now I can't put this podcast um, for kids. See? It's all your no, phone. you bleep, bleep it. I could. I could. But but it, what was the fun in that? Okay. Next question. Is there a book or resource that really profoundly impacted your perspective on cybersecurity? Or your career? It doesn't have to be cyber.
1: Yes. Uh Two of them that I would would call out because I think they're complementary to each other and they and they together give a, a whole. So the two books that I think were most profound for me was Bruce Schneider's "Click Here to Kill Everyone." I think it's a great book. Really should read that. Uh, and the second is Evan Francine's book "Unsecurity," because the two of those combined give you a whole perspective. So so what are the the, the actual technical challenges, the, the consequences, you know, that's what Schneider's going to help you to understand in his click here to kill everyone is, is, is the ecosystems and the interactions and those things. And what Evan brings to the table is, you know, what is it like to have sat in this chair for 20 plus years? What are the biggest challenges on the human side of the equation that directly affect and impact the technical side? So I would say those two. Uh, and I'll throw a third one just for fun. And it's our history book and it's called Dark Territory. And it is the history book of our history. So a a great read, but I would say that those two had the most impact on me.
0: Amazing. Amazing. And last but not least, looking back, what would you tell a younger Ryan in the start of his career?
1: Sleep more, eat better, stay hydrated, and be kind to yourself.
0: Words to live by. Ryan, thank you so much for being here today. I think this is really the best kickstart I could have asked for for this podcast. I hope we'll have many other guests here.
1: I love it. And thank you so much for having me on. It's such an honor to be here. And I'm glad to see you're back. And I'm looking forward to uh, guests today, but audience member tomorrow.
0: Thank you. Thank you. So see you next time.